Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 through 45. And let's pick up our text where Paul read for us the last two verses of uh, chapter 2. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. We've just gotten through the book of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all prophesying this time where, um, because of Israel's sin, they would be spending 70 years in the land of Babylon under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel left as one of the first captives at the age of about 17. He's there for the full duration of the 70 years. Chapter 1, we made mention, and when we get to chapter 9, um, he tells us that he understood after reading Jeremiah that it's time to go home. And so he begins to repent and he begins to pray that they would indeed be allowed to return. As you look at chapter 2, chapter 1, we find Daniel um, being set aside with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were found to be ten times wiser than all of the other magic guys and astrologers and soothsayers. Well, Daniel and his buddies were ten times sharper than any of them. And so they were elevated to a position, but not quite as high of a position, because before we get through with chapter 2, Daniel's going to go from a wise man on one level and be exalted to the second most powerful man in the world, second only to Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now let me say that there's never been a world leader, dictator, monarch, call him what you want to, who has had more authority by his word than any other man that's ever lived. He's going to be represented here as a head of gold. Under him, Medo-Persia will be represented as silver, inferior to. And really the point is, as you go down through these kingdoms, each of them deteriorate with the amount of authority that's invested in them. But there's never really been quite a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. And as we dive into this, We are in one of the greatest sections of the Word of God as far as Bible prophecy is concerned. This metallic image in chapter 2 is going to be repeated in chapter 7, but instead of a metallic image, it's going to be um, four different creatures or beasts, but it tells the same story. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, we have Daniel 70 weak prophecies, which form the backbone and the rib of biblical prophecy. You could never have a skeleton of prophecy without these passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. 
As a matter of fact, everything the Lord taught about on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discord, when the disciples came to him and said, Lord, just tell us, what's it, what's it going to be like at the end of time? It's there where he points back to the book of Daniel. And he says, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Well, that was a question by the disciples. And he says, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation, future tense, um, whosoever reads, let him understand. It's one of the few places in the Bible where it's actually parentheses. So go back. If you think you understand Daniel, um, make sure you understand it. Another place he he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? Well, when you read the Bible, especially in the realm of prophecy, um, if you're not born again, you're not going to get it. Can I say it any simpler than that? Good place for an amen. You know, the Bible says the natural man doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the things of the Spirit, nor can he, because you're not born again. So don't get overly frustrated when you're sharing with your family and friends and what's plain as day to you and why can't you get this and figure this out. Nicodemus couldn't figure it out. He says, what do you mean, born again? I go in my mother's womb and come out a second time? I'm an old man. And the Lord tried to explain it to him. He said, no, Nick, it's sort of like the wind. You can see the effects that it has on a tree but you don't see it. You only see the effects that it has. Well, Nicodemus eventually got saved, but it wasn't that time. But as we get into chapter 2, let me give you just a little bit of background. Chapter 1 is in Hebrew. But chapters 2 through 7 are going to be in the Aramaic language. Why? Because we're going to deal with four major Gentile nations. And because they're Gentile, the verbiage, the language is in Hebrew. When you get to chapter 8 through 12, it reverts back to Hebrew because it's dealing primarily now with Israel. So as we dive in this morning, let's go to chapter 2. And um, Daniel's there. We'll pick it up in verse 1, and uh, we'll read down to verse 7, and I'll stop and explain just a little bit there. So, Daniel 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled that his sleep had left him. And then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, And the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream. And my spirit is anxious to know the meaning of the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic and said, Oh, king, live forever. Just tell your servant the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. But the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, then you'll be cut in pieces and your houses will be an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, then you'll receive honor from 
me in gifts and rewards. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, put your guys, yourself in the, in, in the shoes of these so-called wise men. And um, they're trapped. They, they want the king to tell them the dream, but he won't do it. Because I think he knows them. He, in verse 7 it says, they answered again and said, Well, first tell us the, the dream, and then we'll give you the interpretation. You see, the wise men realize they're in a very dangerous situation. And they again cautiously ask the king, just tell us what you dreamt and we'll tell you what it means. And because, quite frankly, they didn't know. Now, let me point out that Nebuchadnezzar didn't forget the dream. The dream's all up here. That's not his problem. His problem is he doesn't know what the dream means. But he's not going to tell these guys what it is. But it's not that he doesn't know what he dreamed, but it bothered him greatly. Here he is, and I I suppose if you try to put yourself in his situation, um, one kingdom is always trying to overthrow another kingdom. And here he is, he's a monarch of the entire globe, most powerful man in the world. And he's wondering about his future. And as we pick it up, let's go back to verse 8. And the king calls him on the carpet on this. In verse 8, the king answered and says, I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lies and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore... You guys tell me the dream, and I will show you, and you give me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and says, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such a thing of any uh, magic, magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requires, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And for this reason, the king was very angry and very furious, and he gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. All of them? Yeah. You know who that includes? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were part of, of the wise men and the leadership. So the decree went out, And they began to kill the wise men, and they began to hunt them down, and Daniel and his companions were to be killed. So in these first 14 verses, we have basically Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. It greatly troubles him. He wants the interpretation of it in the worst way. And um, he gives these guys an ultimatum. He says, Paying you guys a lot of money to um, be able to reveal these hidden mysteries and, and you're not able to, so what good are you? Might as well get rid of you. Well, Daniel catches wind of this. And um, as we look at, um, oh, where's the first time it comes up in verse 18? Let's read down to verse 18. 
picking it up in verse 14. Uh, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and he said to Arioch, the, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel takes a step back and he says, can you give me a little time? Ask the king that he might give us a little bit of time to have a prayer meeting or something (laughs) that we might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went into the house and he made the decision known to Haniel, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek from the God of heaven um, and his companions might not perish from the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now just as a side note here, the God of heaven. It only appears um, in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, uh, this phraseology. And it's because uh, back in Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed. Therefore, instead of the God of Israel or the God of Jerusalem or the God of the temple, Only in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel do we have this phrase, the God of heaven. It occurs in verse 18, if you're taking notes, verse 28, verse 37. And these other books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, are all dealing with that period of time where there is no temple. And that's just for what it's worth. It only occurs um, in these places. Dreams. And... um, they go and they have their prayer meeting, and um, the dream is, verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He answered him, have not because you asked not. Dreams. Ever wonder about dreams? Anybody have a dream last night? You didn't have a dream last night? I had a dream last night. I can remember it all about 10 seconds after I wake up. The Bible says about dreams in Ecclesiastes, I won't have you turn there, in chapter 5 it says two things. For a dream comes to the multitude of business and a multitude of words. Well, what does that mean? It means unconsciously you can be very busy in doing an activity during the day in a multitude of business. And when you go to sleep, your mind doesn't just click off, but it continues to go on and think about that very thing. In verse 7, it says, For the multitude of dreams and many words, this is also vanities. Well, what are you trying to say, Dwight? Well, dreams can be as significant as the backbone of prophecy, directly revelation from God, or they can be because you ate too much pizza the night before. Last week, after breakfast, Judy said, I had a dream. I said, what kind of dream? What did you dream? She says, well, I don't know. I was in this, this restaurant area, and it had a kitchen in it, and I was hungry, and I was going in to make breakfast, and I couldn't find any pots and any pans, and I couldn't find anybody to ask where they were. And it was in a room that could hold about 30 people, and I turned around, and they were all sitting there waiting for to have their breakfast. 
And I didn't know what to do because I couldn't find the owner of the restaurant and I didn't know where the pots and pans were. And she's not looking at me right now because... <laughs> yeah, you didn't know I was going to do that. What, what was it? Just nothing. You know, it can be every dream that we have is not a word from the Lord. I remember many, many years ago in the communal houses, sometimes people have a tendency to over-spiritualize things. I, th- I think every church has at least one or two who will take something and over-spiritualize it for whatever reason. And I remember this one girl in particular, she had this problem. And she went up to the, 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 the pastor of, of one of the communal houses. She said, oh, I had this dream about you last night. It was a picture of this beautiful orange, but then they cut it open and it was rotten. <laughs> Uh, I bet you that pastor was blessed out of his socks. <laughs> Here's what you do. If you ever have somebody come up to you and say, you know, I have a word f- from the Lord for you. And everybody has had this happen to them. I say, great, what is it? And I'm waiting to hear it. And then when they tell me, um, if I've been praying about something, okay, and the Lord has spoken to me about something. So let something be established in the witness two or three. So if a person comes up to me and says, Dwight, you know, I, th- I think the Lord really gave me a word. And if, I, if the Lord has already spoken to me about something, and that person says exactly the same thing, I call that a confirmation and a witness in, a, in the sight of two witnesses. But on the other hand, if the person is one of those type of people that I was telling you about earlier... <laughs> and gets these revelations all the time, I usually tell them, you know what? When the Lord tells me that, I'll be the first to let you know. (laughs) So just be be wise, be discerning, and uh, use judgment. There are people that like to draw attention to themselves, and and will have that. Daniel is not trying to... Daniel is going to do just the opposite. He's going to take the attention off of himself and put it squarely... On, on, on the Lord. All right, where do we leave off? Pick it up in verse 19. Okay, 19. Then, okay, then a secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So he blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the season. He removes kings. He raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's command. Now, as we we get into this all of a sudden, Daniel sees the whole thing. Everything that the king dreamed has been downloaded to Daniel. And so as we pick it up in verse 24, he has his audience with, um, with the king. But again, remember, what Daniel wants to do here is he wants to make a distinction between the wise men of Babylon and his God in heaven. So let's pick it up in verse 24. And then we're just going to read through verse 
um, 27 here. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I'll tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which you have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, uh, and I'm going to put a sarcastic tone in this next part here, Uh, the wise men, the astrologers, uh, the magicians, the soothsayers, they couldn't do it for you? (laughs) Do you see the dig? It's meant to be a dig. He wanted them to know that they were just men. But notice the word but. In other words, what, what he's doing here is he's making a distinction between the wisdom of Babylon and the wisdom of God. And I'm going to get a little rabbit trail on that one in just a second. But he says, but man can't do anything on his, on his own. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to, to know Nebuchadnezzar, what will be, and this is important, underline it, in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon you on your bed were these. Now before I get into explaining what the interpretation is, um, I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and just get some practical stuff in here as we're going through it. Read about 10 verses or so. (coughs) Excuse me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's pick it up at verse 20. Wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. Verse 20 says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world, through wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who would believe. It's God's wisdom to choose weak human vessels with the most important message that could ever be delivered. But he picks the foolish instead of the wise. Now he makes a contrast of two great cultures of that time. He says the Jews, they want a sign, and the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. What does that mean? That the Lord is looking for an average Joe who's willing to give God the credit and the glory like Daniel. 
There will be all these others that have their titles and positions in front of their names to give the appearance that they might have or know something more than you. But the Lord says that's not who he's calling. There's not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. When he chose the 12 disciples, he didn't, he didn't go to Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He didn't go there. He went to Galilee, went to Capernaum, picked out a bunch of fishermen, picked up a tax collector here and, and some other guys that were just traveling along, just average, everyday people. That, and the reason for that being so that no flesh would glory in his presence. When you know that you're part of the category <laughs> of the feeble and the weak and the basings of the world, uh, when the Lord does do something, then the world looks at you and go, it's got to be God, can't be him. <laughs> and God gets the credit. And that's the way he wants it. And that's the way it should be. So I think that was a little dig on Daniel's part. What about all these hot shots you got here? These astrologers and Zeus there, all these wise guys who say they're smart. They were smart enough to ask for more time so they could connive and, and talk about something and come up with some interpretation. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was hip to that. He knew what was going on. He says, no, 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 no. You tell me or you're dead, period. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I like Bruce's song. It's called The Great Exchange, one of my favorite songs. Because what happened on Calvary is the Lord took my unrighteousness, my sin, but that's not all. He gave me his righteousness so that I can boldly stand before you today because I know it's not me. And that when that veil was ripped in the temple, which nobody could go into that holy of holy place, or you were a dead man. (laughs) Now he says, come boldly before the grace of God. So I can stand boldly before you today. I know who I am. And you know who you are. But then there's another thing to know who you are in Christ. And we're commanded to um, speak with authority. He's charged us to speak the oracles of God with authority, knowing that it's not you. Good place for an amen. Amen, it's the Lord. So that takes us to, um, let's go back to Daniel now. Verse 28, we get into the interpretation itself. But the God of heaven who reveals secret has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days Your dream and the visions of your head were upon your bed were these. All right, he has the king's attention. He says, okay, king, as for you, thoughts came into mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than Anyone living, I'm no smarter than the other guys. But for our sakes, 
have made known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. And now he gets into it. You, O king, were watching. And behold, all of a sudden there was this great image. Now, at this time, I'm going to put something on the screen to give you a visual of what he actually was looking at. Of course, we have no idea really what it looked like, but it plays heavily into our our study in the book of Revelation. And as this is what basically Nebuchadnezzar saw, he says, you are watching and behold a great image. Well, here's the image. The great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried it away. And there was no trace of them found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation before the king. I tried to put myself in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, as he said, okay, you saw this great image. Don't you think he perked up right at that point? And then as he's going through it, I just see this king sitting on the edge of his throne going, this guy is nailing it spot on. He's not missing one thing. That's exactly what I saw, including the stone that came out and hit the feet and crushed it and blew it all away. And it comes a great mountain, great dream. What does it mean? He says, well, that's it. And I'm sure he had Nebuchadnezzar's attention at this time. Uh, just quickly, to show you that uh, he, the first thing he talks about here is the interpretation. It says, you, O king, are a king of kings. And the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell on the beasts of the field and the birds of In the heavens, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Major revelation. That's me. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 27. Gang, one of the reasons so important to teach chapter by chapter, book by book, and verse by verse of the Bible, is when we get to something like this, we should be somewhat already familiar about the warnings that were given about the latter days. I'm going to start with the latter days and work myself into a little talk about um, Jeremiah here and this first interpretation. But first in verse 28, it says this, this vision has to do with the latter days. The end of the times of the Gentiles runs concurrently with the latter days and the nation of Israel. Both come to their fulfillment during the Great Tribulation period. Now this is important. It is also well to note that the term, the times of the Gentiles, 
is not synonymous with the fullness of the Gentiles, which we read, and I'll quote Romans 11, verse 25, which says, Brethren, I won't have you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own conceit, that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The fullness of the Gentiles ends with the rapture of the church, the terms, the latter days, which you read in verse 28, and the times of the Gentiles are not synonymous with the last days of the church, which comes to a fulfillment at the rapture. In other words, the church starts here, Pentecost. It ends when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. It's referring to a time frame, the church age. It has a beginning and it has an end. And we refer to it as the fullness of the Gentiles, implying a number. And as I like to say, if if you're the one person that needs to fill that number up, will you please get your act together and get saved so we can go home? It's Mother's Day. Mom's been praying for you for a long time. Get your act together. There There shouldn't be any confusion between The times of the Gentiles. What does that mean, the times of the Gentiles? Well, we see in this picture that the times of the Gentiles will continue right on into the Great Tribulation. And at that time, God will again turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. What we're studying here, what we're going to see, are four, five world empires. We will see in this section of history of the rule of this world by the Gentiles. That's quite a heavy statement to make. The rule of Gentiles that have completely dominated and had control over the entire world. Um, One, two, three, four, five are listed here on the screen. But there was actually, Daniel's not commenting on the two that were before it. Egypt was the first one, then the Assyrians. Why aren't they mentioned? Because it doesn't have anything to do with Daniel and Babylon. Only hereafter. But no, and it's important because seven is going to come into this, and seven is the number of completions. So when we see in this section the history of of the rule of the world by the Gentiles, because the failure of the house of David, God has now taken the scepter of the universe out of the hands of that line of David, and he has put it into the hands of the Gentiles. And it will be there until Jesus Christ comes again to the earth. Then Christ, which is a stone, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, will take the scepter and rule on this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the times of the Gentiles is really from the times that go back to Egypt, but here, Nebuchadnezzar, right on through our day until the Lord comes and reigns. Now, if you're in Jeremiah, uh, the point that I'm making here is because of Israel's failure, he actually turned it over to the Gentiles. This is what Jeremiah tells us. Jeremiah 27, picking it up in verse 5. I have made the earth, the man, the beast that are on the ground, By my great power and my outstretched arms, you have given it to whom seems proper to me, 
And now I, this would be the Lord, have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given to him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his sons and his sons' sons until the time of the land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be that the nation and the kingdoms which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation will I punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore, don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers, who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. Well, we just went through Jeremiah. Isn't that the whole book? That's what he's saying. Don't listen to these guys that say you're not going into captivity. You are. And here it's repeated. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from the land, and I will drive you out, and, and you will perish. But the nation that brings their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serves him, I will let him remain in their own land. This would be Daniel. Says the Lord, until, until, until it, and they will dwell in it again. They were only there for that 70-year period of duration. So the times of the Gentiles. When you hear that phrase, biblically, it is the nations that had, had ruling domination over the entire world. And we're simply picking it up. We can go back to Daniel now. Where Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And... Um, Then in 39, he says, but after you shall arise another kingdom. Now imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar and you're hearing this. Next week, we're in chapter 3. And we're going to find out that old Nebuchadnezzar has a big problem with Daniel's dream. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. So basically what we're reading is you're going to be preceded by another kingdom inferior to yours than another and a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Let's just look at those three. Babylon fell in one night. And that's a whole study within itself. Um, And it was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And um, they were preceded by Alexander the Great, just as silver is inferior to gold, so iron is inferior, uh, um, brass is inferior to silver. That represents Alexander the Great. And then you have the Roman Empire of iron, which, of course, is inferior to brass. So it's sort of a digression in these, um, these metals. So picking it up in verse 40, we've, we have these four. Um, And in verse 40 it says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom will be divided, 
and yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Now, before we move on, we need to notice one more thing. When you get to Rome, this final one, it's been, what, 2,000 years, going on 2,000 years since Rome fell? The Roman Empire is the last, and it will be in existence again in the latter days. Actually, it's in existence today. All of these empires were destroyed by an enemy from the outside, but no enemy ever destroyed Rome. Attila the Hun came in and sacked the city, but he was so awestruck. Can you imagine a country bumpkin coming in and seeing the Colosseum <laughs> and say, what do I do with something like this? And what he saw, he realized that he could not handle. He took his barbarians and left town. The Roman Empire fell apart from within. No enemy ever destroyed it. Rome is living in the great nations of Europe today. We have Italy, France, Great Britain, Germany, Spain. They're all part of the old Roman Empire. Having said that, don't think there haven't been men who have tried to establish a world government. Stalin, Hitler, for a thousand years he's going to have the German Reich. That was his claim. Mussolini and others, they've all come, they've all gone. And yet the Bible speaks of a one world government and a one world religion. Now if you look back at the chart up on up on the screen, um, the Bible predicts that there will be a one-world government and a one-world religion. I want to tell a couple personal stories here um, that go back. I had to Google this. I couldn't remember when Clinton was serving. So I found out from my friend Siri <laughs> that between 1993, that's when he came, in, came into power. Well, in the 90s, I was going to India every year and um, setting up, teaching in Bible colleges and go for, going from one week, I'd be in one place, today I'd go to another week. This particular year, I was in uh, the state of Connecticut. The capital is Bangalore, but I was in a city called Mangalore, right on the coast. And I was having my tea, like you do, and the Brits' influence on India. And I was reading the paper, and I opened it up, and it's a 25th anniversary of the, the um, uh, celebration of life. Now, how many of you have heard of Ravi Shankar? How many of you think I'm talking about the Beatles right now? I am not. Ravi Shankar is the, was the guru at the time. He was drawing a, a crowd in Bangalore, in the state of Connecticut, it had to be in the 90s, I don't remember, because I went every year. There was two million people that gathered at this event. And as I read in the paper, I was in Bangalore, and I needed to get to Bangalore. Because it said 150 representatives from around the world, including Bill Clinton and Prince Charles, and the list just went on and on, one dignitary after another. We're going to show up at this place. So I asked... Uh, uh, the, the pastor of the church, I said, you know, I leave here, and then, I ha and then I'm going to Goa, but can I go here first? He said, sure. You can 
speak at our church on Sunday morning. And I said, I'd really like to take this in, and I'd like to see what this is all about. So he got me in, and I can't tell you what it's like looking at two million people because they had them sectioned off in sections of uh, hundreds or thousands. Just imagine Lambo. What do they see? 80,000 or something like that? Am I in the ballpark there? Or am I in the football field? A lot of people. So they had to have these big screens. The stage held 5,000 people. On the stage was a throne. And he had this little white guy with a big squeaky voice, spoke like this, very high voice. (laughs) And then they had one world leader after another. I missed Clinton because he was going to be there for a couple days. But one world leader after another got up and said these words, in so many words or less. If we don't come about with a one world religion and a one world government, we will annihilate ourselves. And this was supposed to be a convergence at the end of the night. Ravi Shankar got up and led two million people in meditation and oming. And it's one of the weirdest things I've ever experienced in my life. But I was glad for the experience because it tells me that this last empire, if, it's, if we're really living in the latter days then we should be seeing movements towards that end. Well, that was in the 90s that that happened. Tony Blair, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 97 to 2007, when he retired, he converted to Roman Catholicism and said he was now dedicating the rest of his life to form and help support a one-world religion. We're not talking about a country bumpkin here. We're talking about... We talked about Tony Blair. Whether or not he's still continuing on with that, I really don't know for sure. I wish I had more research. I was doing it before I came down here this morning, trying to get as much information as I could on President Trump's visit to Israel, Saudi Arabia, and then to go visit the Pope after meeting with President uh, Mohammed Abbas, who is a chief negotiator for the Palestinians. Say what? Yeah, Trump is going to meet with Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu. Then he's going to meet with Abbas. Then he's going to Saudi Arabia. And then he's going to Rome to talk about the difficulties that they're having in the Middle East. And is there any way that we can come to some sort of peaceful conclusion? Do you not see the stage being set here for a one world leader in government? And all it's going to take is one disaster for this to happen. Dave Hunt said, and he's always believed, I believe that it's the rapture of the church. I believe when that happens, nothing like this has ever happened before, and the world will be in such turmoil and chaos, they'll be open to everything and anything. Because Noah said it was going to rain, and judgment was coming. It never rained before. (laughs) How is God going to judge the world? Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? You know, and in a moment, gang, in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be out of here, and this world is going to be forever changed. And the stage is being set right now. I wish I had more time because I'm doing some research on a dam just north of Mosul. And just within the last four days, they've got it secured. But people were fleeing Mosul, which is ancient Nineveh, where Jonah was. 
Okay? Jonah preached to Nineveh 100% conversion rate. But 100 years after Jonah, they're completely back into their old ways. And if you read the book of um, Nahum, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it said that he was going to destroy Nineveh by a flood. And in the year 612, I'm doing this from the back of my head right now, because I'm just starting to research it. In 612 BC, Nineveh was destroyed by the Tigris. It never rained for the three months during that summer period, but it rained every day during that period of time, and it was destroyed by a flood. The reason people, I was, I was so baffled by what I was reading, I went online and I, there's simulations that you can show that if this dam goes, 20 million people will be killed. More devastating than an atomic bomb. So I wanted a better resource, so I called up Elijah Abraham, who grew up in Baghdad. And uh, he's going to be with us in September. No, I'm not going to sing See You in September, so don't worry about that at all. I'll let that go. And um, he said, Dwight, they're, they're shoring that one up as we speak. But yes, a lot of have left, but now the Christians are coming back. But the two they really need to worry about, and he told me about these two other, two other bridges. So anyway, it, my point is this. It could be anything that could trigger Isaiah 17, verse 1 from happening. I mean, that could happen tomorrow. And that's the destruction of Damascus. And we could have this... Like the Bible says, it's birth pains. It'll be one quickly, one right after another. And um, either a major event like that or the rapture will certainly put that into play. Okay, it's been 2,000 years, which brings us finally to our text. We should be out by three, no problem. Okay. i got to finish reading about this rabbit toes, verse 40. Uh, 42, and the toes of feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, and they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as, as iron does not mix with clay. I believe it's speaking about the European Union. Daniel chapter 9 clearly says that it has to come out of Europe, not Turkey. That's the latest buzz that's going around right now. The new dictator in Turkey is, has uh, the markings of the Antichrist. No, he doesn't. He has the exact opposite markings of the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes in as a man of peace. This guy is a complete dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. So the next time you hear somebody say, well, uh, this guy who just threw over the, the government in Turkey is, could be the Antichrist. No, it's just the opposite. He's more like the new guy coming out of the corner in France. He's more like that guy. Comes out of nowhere, like Obama came out of nowhere. And that's the way it's going to be. But he's going to be a man of peace. And that's where the deception comes in. I also believe he has to be Jewish. Because I don't think anybody but a Jew is going to be accepted by Israel to have permission to build the temple. It's not rocket scientists at all. Okay. Um, our text. After this, now he's finishing up the dream. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven. What kings? 
the kings that come up out of Europe. If you know anything about Europeans, the Germans don't like the French. The French don't like the Australians. The Australians don't like the, They got this independent thing going amongst themselves. And so that they're not cleaving to each other. Yes, they're a part of a, something that is going to eventually be the final latter-day world power that the Antichrist will rule over. So this is yet future. And so yet future, in the days when we have this last one here, when it comes into power, in the days of those kings, it says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. And inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountains without hands, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is true. It fulfills Psalm 2. Please just turn over there quickly. Book of Psalms. You can't get past one and we're already talking about what we just read about this morning. The battle of Armageddon, the establishing of the Lord's kingdom. And it's only 12 verses, so I'm just going to let it speak for itself. The stone, by the way, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that stone that followed them through the, the wilderness was Christ, the rock of our salvation. All through the scriptures, he's referred to as that solid rock. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath. This is a great tribulation period. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You see the contrast? Kingdom of man and then his son's king. I will declare the decree the Lord has said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them like a rod of iron, or you could say you could dash them like a stone that smashes them. And you shall dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, but blessed are those who put their trust in his name. God gave to Daniel a dream to interpret to the king of Babylon. He gave five of the seven world-dominating empires that have been on planet Earth. 
One thing that they all had in common of these seven is they came, they went, and they're gone. That's the thing they have in common. They came, they went, and they're gone. This Wednesday, we will be in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We have seven letters to seven churches. And this is where we're going to begin to connect the dots and why we're teaching through Revelation on Wednesday and Daniel on Sunday morning. We've just went through, one is yet coming, but it's a done deal as far as the Lord is concerned. He's spoken it. When he said the interpretation is sure, it's going to happen. So it's a done deal. The Lord is going to establish his kingdom. Well, there are seven letters to seven churches. Seven is the number of completion. And the one thing that the true church has, in contrast to these other kingdoms of men, I'm quoting now Revelation 2, a little teaser for Wednesday night. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken to shivers, as I receive from my father. And I will give him the morning star, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Daniel 2 verse 44 says, when this happens, it will stand forever and ever and ever and ever, in contrast to these kingdoms that came and are no longer. We'll close this morning in Luke chapter 20, talking about this stone, this rock. What a Mother's Day message. Wow. (laughs) Moms, I hope you're not disappointed if you think the Bible said it was going to be about you. (laughs) You'll get over it, hopefully by supper time. (laughs) No, we live in times that the church really needs to be equipped and aware of what's happening. And um, it brings us to, you know, the Holy Spirit is such a gentleman and he is not in the arm-twisting business at all. He simply presents truth and lets you decide. He lets you read the scriptures. You go click, 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 click. That, that's spot on. It's like Nebuchadnezzar listening to Daniel. That fits, that fits, that fits, that fits, that fits. Therefore, I believe it. The false prophet saying, it's not going to happen, not going to happen, not going to happen. Something wasn't right here. And so you blow that one off. We are to judge. People like to quote Matthew 7, 7. Judge not, you won't be judged. Well, that means that I shouldn't judge Mike's heart about whether or not he likes roast beef or not, because I really don't know. But only God knows. But when it comes to Bible doctrine, the spiritual man judges everything. And we, we are told to do that. But all that means nothing unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a personal way. So on Mother's Day 2017, Jesus told a parable of the vine owners. It's, it's a parable against the false prophets in the Old Testament who should have been warning the people, about the times that they were living in. And it's actually against them. And then he talks about setting the prophets, and they wouldn't listen, and then the father says, I know, I'll send my own dear son. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely they'll listen to him. But when he comes, they, they came and they killed him. And then the Lord says in verse 15, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to those guys? He says, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyards to others. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, certainly not. And then the Lord said this, well, then what is this that is written? It's from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, that would have been the scribes and the Pharisees. John 1 verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. The stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Well, what does that mean? It means that when you come and you hear the gospel, and Jesus says, unless you repent, you're going to perish. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And there is salvation and no other. No matter what president or world leaders trying to go around the globe and put all the pieces together, there's still only one way to heaven. Good place for an amen. There's only one way to heaven. How do you get there? You've got to be broken. Next week, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be in full-out revolt against this vision. But by the end of it, the last verse of chapter 3 says, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. I gave a little bit too much away. I didn't want to give that away this week. Whoever falls on a stone will be broken. That's what happens when you come to Christ. You see the wretchedness of your own sin. And you say, Lord, unless you do give me your righteousness, I can't do this thing. So either that's one option, fall on a stone or be broken. Or the other option is, but on, on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Oh, doesn't that take out a whole new meaning now that we read Daniel chapter 2 and the stone smiting the image and grinding it to what? Powder. And then, poof, blowing it away. And then the Lord establishing his kingdom. If you don't know Jesus, uh, this Mother's Day 2017, he's only a prayer away, 18 inches. 18 inches is about from here to here. Not knowing about him, but having him live here. So that when you do stand before him, he doesn't say to me, depart from me, I never knew you. Yeah, but I went to church and I did good things and I supported this. And he says, no, I didn't know you. So this year could be the year that if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, why don't you do so as we close in this prayer? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you for this incredible prophecy that you gave to Daniel, to this leader that you yourself called your servant. What it does for us is we see the accuracy of the scriptures and how profound that these things were foretold and came to pass exactly as they said they would. But Lord, we don't really need to have all the information. It's good to know, but it's more important that we know that we've made our peace with you. And I pray for any 
within the sound of my voice this morning, either here or watching online, that have never given their heart to you, never repented of their sins, Lord, that it would be this day, Mother's Day 2017, when they bowed their heart before you, confessed that they were a sinner, and then invited you into their life to be your Lord and Savior. So I pray for that one now. And Lord, that final verse that says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Just see that truth is truth and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.